Well, will you please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, Exodus 3, and we want everybody to be able to see from whence we are getting the points that are being made in today's message. So we want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. These brothers have come forward with copies of Scripture as they make their way back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention and they'll get one of those to you. Exodus chapter 3, as we continue our series, Portraits of Grace, we started last week looking at the life of Moses, and we'll continue that this week and into next week as well. An article in the Philadelphia Inquirer a few years back said, when the three-day Pennsylvania Dutch Festival arrives this morning at Reading Terminal Market, expect homemade traditional foods, handmade quilts, brooms, and woodcrafts, Amish buggy rides, and even a petting zoo on Arch Street, Saturday only. But pay attention if you see any giddy teenagers hanging around, smoking, flirting, blathering into cell phones, looking as if they're ingested, they've just ingested something other than farm-fresh produce. They may, of course, be English, the Amish name for all non-Amish, just mainstream teens taking time off from other sorts of petting zoos in the neighborhood. Or, especially if they bear traces of a faded, bowl-cut hairstyle, or recently doffed frocks and bonnets, they may be Amish teens testing their beliefs during a season of Rumspringa, the remarkable bit of Amish inside baseball that's explored in a book called To Be or Not to Be Amish. And that is the Amish question, you might say. But pondering how Amish answer it calls for some background. The Amish, we all know, exalt humility and nonviolence. They downplay individual achievement and excess book learning. They seek to be in the world, but not of the world, especially not part of its unchristian evil. Few, however, know of Rumspringa, a word and practice that in Pennsylvania... Pennsylvania Deutsch, or German, means running around. It begins when an Amish youth turns 16, usually lasts a year to several years, and ends when the youth decides either to be baptized in the church and accept the responsibilities of an adult member, or leave Amish society altogether. Now, we look at a practice like that, and we think, wow, that's kind of strange. And it is, except it's not as strange as it should be. Because the truth is, in our own circles, we get the idea that one has to go through his or her own period of rebellion. It's almost accepted as a rite of passage in all areas of society, including the evangelical church, that one has to go through their own period of turning away from that which they were raised with. And experience teaches us that many, in fact, do that. But the Bible teaches no such nonsense. And today, from the life of Moses, we're going to see one whom God protected from the world and used him in mighty ways. We're also going to see one who, however, sinned. And he sinned not only prior to being commissioned by God, but after being commissioned by God as well. And so, in looking at the life of Moses, if you sinned in ways with lasting effects, be of good cheer. Our gracious God can and will use you as well. And so to look at that in the life of Moses, I provided an outline for you, inserted in your program. I encourage you to take a look at it. 
And the first of the three points I want to make to you about the life of Moses is that God's purpose overcomes all opposition. God's purpose overcomes all opposition. Now, I say all opposition. What are the forms of the opposition that every person whom God would use, like Moses, like you, like me, will face? Well, the Bible teaches in a number of passages that that opposition comes in three forms, three categories. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. If you look at those two verses closely, you will see these three elements that are found elsewhere in Scripture. First, uh, the book of 1 John mentions these three a number of times, for instance. You'll see our own sin, that we were, were dead in trespasses and sins. And then even after coming to Christ, the Bible teaches we still struggle with indwelling sin. So there is sin or the sin nature. And then there is the world following the ways of this world. And then there is the spirit, the prince of the air, the devil, Satan. The Bible speaks of these three as the sources of opposition to God's people, all three of them, the world, the flesh, the sin nature, and the devil. And in the life of Moses, you see one in whom God overcame all of those in his life in order to use him productively for God's purpose. God's purpose overcomes, I say, first of all, in your outline, the world. It overcomes the world. Now, what is the world? You've heard me talk about it in a number of teachings and a number of messages over the years, if you've been with us. The Greek word in your New Testament for world is cosmos. It refers to the arrangement of this world that is arranged against God. And so the Bible speaks universally of the world in, in negative terms. There is something wrong with the arrangement of the world. And people in the world, in the way they think and talk and act, align themselves then with the ways of the world. And the Bible warns against it in a number of places. Romans 12 and verse 2, famously, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. James says a couple of times in his short five-chapter letter, he says in chapter 1, keep yourself from being polluted by the world. And then in chapter 4, again, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And so how is it that we avoid the world, since in fact we are in it? Well, Jesus, in his prayer, for his followers, both his first followers, the apostles, and then those who would come after them by believing on their message, Jesus prays a prayer in John chapter 17 that is rightly called the Lord's Prayer, because it's a prayer the Lord prayed. The prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer from Matthew 6 is not a prayer for the Lord. It's a prayer for us, as you've heard me say. It says, forgive us our trespasses. Jesus can't pray that prayer. But he did pray John 17. And in John 17, Jesus said to the Father, they are in the world, but they are not of the world. 
So God has called us, as he's, we're going to see, called Moses to carry out our mission in the world, but we are to have a different, distinct value system arrangement from that of the world. The problem of the world is not being in it, it's being of it. And so the world, as used in those passages that I cited, does not refer primarily to a place, but to a false value system. It could be defined this way. The world is the thoughts and opinions and maxims and speculations and hopes and impulses and aims and aspirations that are at any time current in the world, which at every moment of our lives we inhale, again, inevitably, exhale. So the world is where we are, and its value system is all around us. The Bible tells us of Moses in Acts chapter 7 that Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Now think about his cosmos. Think about his world. Think about what it was Moses needed to be protected from by God's grace. One commentator says the Egyptians at that time were the most intelligent and best instructed people in the world. Another says Moses was taught arithmetic, geometry, poetry, music, medicine, and the knowledge of hieroglyphics. And yet another said, quote, that of all of the wisdom which came into the world, the Egyptians had 90% and all the other inhabitants of the earth had only the remaining portion. That verse in Acts chapter 7, where Stephen preaches this mighty sermon after the persecution has broken out against the first church in Jerusalem, Stephen is the one who said Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, but it goes on to say that he was mighty in words and deeds. Formal education in Egypt included reading and writing of hieroglyphic scripts, copying of text, instruction in writing letters and other formal documents. Moses probably had learned other languages, including the languages of Canaan. The Bible says he was mighty in words, but also in deeds. The Jewish historian Josephus says that Moses was a general of an Egyptian army that defeated the Ethiopians and had invaded, that invaded Egypt and drove the Ethiopians back to their own country and took their capital. And then there is the fabulous wealth of Egypt, the world in which Moses was reared, that he needed to be protected from, the pagan learning as dazzling as it might be in Egypt, but also the the absolutely dazzling and fabulous wealth of Egypt. And Moses had access to that wealth as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. The world gained a glimpse of that wealth in 1922 when the treasures of King Tut's tomb were discovered. Here's what one commentator says about Tut's tomb. You can get some idea of just how much wealth King Tut possessed from the fact that one small gold-plated chest, which housed some of his visceral organs, was recently valued at more than a quarter of a million dollars. His coffin was made from solid gold and weighed 2,500 pounds. Today it is worth $13 million. And as if that's not enough, King Tut's face was covered by a mask of 22-karat gold, which weighs in at 296 pounds. It's estimated to be worth $1.5 million. 
When the exhibit came to the Museum of Ancient Art in Switzerland in 2004, it was assigned the staggering replacement value of nearly three quarters of a billion dollars. Now, there are only two things that immediately spring to mind as worth mentioning in relation to King Tut's wealth. The first is, he was apparently not even a particularly notable pharaoh in ancient times. His tomb is so well known today, not because it was particularly large, but because it's among the best preserved, because it was overlooked by most ancient grave robbers. He became pharaoh when he was nine. He died at the age of 18, a fairly insignificant pharaoh. And yet all of this fabulous wealth was lavished on his carsophagus and his tomb at his death. In fact, in comparison to other pharaohs, it's relatively small, a forgettable tomb. That's probably the reason that it was not discovered or opened until modern times. The second thing that one notices is this. Moses would have been totally unimpressed with his resources. Moses lived around similar and probably even greater wealth on a daily basis. That's the world of Moses. That's the world from which Moses needed to be protected. Yet the Bible says God did that protection for him. And in Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, Stephen says this, When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. Now, Moses is in all of this opulent wealth. He has access to all of this learning. But it's pagan learning, and apparently he knows it. Apparently, his mother, his real mother, who is rearing him, has passed on to him his real identity. And so he knows who his fellow Israelites are. And at age 40, he has a choice to make. Do I join with my own people, or do I stay in the world that is Egypt. And he makes a decisive choice to visit his own people. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us he rejected all the pleasures that Egypt had to offer in order to suffer with Christ. It says actually Christ and with Christ's people. And so when he was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. How often did the people say to Moses, take us back to Egypt. Do you all remember that when they left? We'll see that. But they say, take us back to Egypt. You see, they still had the world with them when they left. And God had trained Moses in the world, but not to be of the world. He left the world behind, those external influences. But we still have the world in us, including, including Moses, in the form of our own sin nature, something called the flesh, Moses had seen and lived and experienced what John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress called the city of Vanity Fair. But Moses, in God's grace, saw it for what it is, vain and empty and meaningless. For all its treasure, it was to Moses and should be to us, dear friends, ultimately worthless. And we're going to look at how God protected him, not just from the world, but now from his own sin, sin nature as well and used him despite his own sin nature. But let me just pause long enough to ask you, do you recognize the worthlessness of the things this world offers? Are you wrapped up in the things that this world offers rather than the things of God and the mission of God? And God is calling us to a higher calling, 
a calling beyond the world, and a calling to the trumpet that he is sounding for his mission in which he wants us to be engaged. And so God's purpose overcomes the world, but I say secondly in your outline, it overcomes the flesh. Or you might write next to that, the sin nature. So Moses visited his people, and chapter 2 of Exodus tells us this. I ask you to turn to chapter 3. Just turn back to chapter 2 for just a moment. And look at verse 11. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were, and he watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian. And hid him in the sand. Now do you see what Moses has done here? Moses says yes. Righteously indignant. At the mistreatment of one of his own people. But he takes matters into his own hands. And rather than trusting God. Knowing that what he is doing is wrong. How do we know that he knows what he's doing is wrong? He looks this way and that. And makes sure no one's looking. And then hid him in the sand. He committed murder. Moses, the deliverer, Moses, the prophet, was first a murderer. And yet God overcame his own sinful tendency to take matters in his own hands to use him in mighty ways. Moses felt the tug of the sin nature that all of us have as well that Galatians chapter 5 speaks of. The sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit. The spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. It's this very Moses who will later receive the direct command of God, thou shalt not murder, but he's already violated that command. He's already violated the law written in everyone's heart according to Romans chapter 2 and verse 14. And so he's guilty. And what does Moses do? He runs. And so taking matters into his own hands in anger would be something that would rear its head in Moses' life in the future as well. He still struggled with it even later. Exodus chapter 17 tells us as they wandered in the wilderness and they needed water. Exodus 17 and verse 6, God instructed Moses to strike a rock for the water. He struck the rock, the water came out of the rock. But then later, Numbers chapter 20 tells us that again they needed water. The people complained against Moses. Why did you bring us out here to die? Take us back to Egypt, all the stuff that you've, that you've read. Then God instructs Moses, not strike the rock, speak to the rock. But Moses doesn't speak to the rock. He strikes the rock. And he not only strikes the rock once, he strikes it twice, and he does so in anger. Moses is, is angry with the people, and he's angry with God for not dealing with the people in a summary fashion. Summarily just judging them for their intemperance and their, and their complaining. God told him to speak to the rock, but he got water. Now let me just say as an aside, he disobeyed God. He struck the rock twice in anger. The water came out. Some people standing there might say, look at God's blessing on Moses' life. Whatever he does... Issues forth in blessing. The people are being given this water by the action of, of Moses. But it was a disobedient action. And I just say this as a quick aside, friends. Do not mistake apparent blessings for obedience. 
And we look at people, even people in church circles, even churches, that are being disobedient to our God. And we say, ah, but look how God is blessing. The issue is not numbers. The issue is not material wealth. The issue is not the things we associate with blessing. It is whether or not we indeed are obedient. Moses was disobedient. And why was it that God then said to him, because of this, you will not see the promised land? Why did God say that? Verse 12 of Numbers 20 says this, because you did not trust me enough. You, Moses, did not trust me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites. You will not bring this community into the land that I give them. Do you see that Moses did not trust God to handle the issue with the Egyptian? He took matters into his own hand. He killed them. That was at an early stage of his career. And now later, as he's leading God's people, he's still struggling with the same sin, so much so that in anger toward God, in anger toward God's people, he strikes the rock twice instead of speaking to it and trusting God to produce what is needed. And God judges him harshly. You failed to trust And yet, despite his sin nature, despite his struggle with the flesh, God used Moses in a mighty way. Though Moses sinned against the Lord, and he continued to struggle with those same tendencies, does that sound familiar to you? You sin against the Lord. I sin against the Lord, and many of us in very similar ways. Over the course of our lives, please understand, God does not put us on the shelf because of our struggle with the sin nature, with the flesh. The purpose of God overcomes all opposition, including that of the world, including that of the sin nature, the flesh. And then thirdly, I say in your outline, it overcomes the devil. And how do we see that in the life of Moses? The backdrop to everything you're reading in Exodus and going forward in your Bible goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 which says, as God pronounces judgment upon the man, the woman, but now as he speaks to the serpent, in verse 15 of Genesis 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He's speaking to the serpent now, the serpent representing Satan, the devil, and says there's going to be this enmity. This enmity describes conflict, hostility. In this conflict against Satan, the devil uses people for his ends. Throughout this conflict, beginning in Genesis chapter 3, Satan is going to use people for his ends within the conflict. He has no no shortage of people to use. Because all of us are born as sinners and therefore by nature follow his ways rather than God. Now most people don't do so overtly as Satan worshippers. They just do it by default, by nature. But even though people unwittingly do Satan's bidding every moment of every day, Satan still hates humanity, even that humanity that he's using. He hates humanity because they are made in the image of God. All humanity, even those who are outside of Christ, Satan still hates because they are made in the image of God. He hates human beings, even those he uses, and he seeks to literally destroy as many as he can. 
And he won a partial victory in the garden when humanity first followed him in defiance against God. And now he seeks to obliterate the image of God that was distorted by the fall. At the beginning of human history, Satan played a major role in the entrance of sin into the human race when he deceived Eve and Adam passively watched. But when Jesus spoke of this event, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden and this conflict between Satan and humanity, ultimately a conflict between Satan and God himself, when Jesus spoke of this event, he spoke of the event not merely as an act of deception and of lying, but hear this, of murder, the ultimate expression of this enmity, this hostility, this conflict. In John chapter 8 and verse 44, John 8, 44, Jesus said this to those who opposed him in his ministry. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. You see, Jesus equates this from the beginning as, as murder. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And that is what is behind genocide and holocaust, including that of abortion. It is Satan using his minions unwittingly, albeit doing what comes naturally in the sin nature. Satan using his minions to destroy the image of God in man. Satan hates humanity in general because we're made in the image of God. But he hates God's plan, that plan to fully restore God's image. He hates that even more. And Genesis 3.15 tells us that that plan involves a lineage, an offspring. And from Satan's standpoint, it must be destroyed. Otherwise, it will lead to the one who will crush his head. And that's why we saw what we saw last week. Pharaoh's decree that all of the male children of Israel be killed. It's an attempt by Satan to snuff out the line of Jesus. 1,500 years later, Herod would do the same thing at the birth of Jesus. Now, neither Pharaoh nor Herod were consciously opposing God's plan. They were just doing what comes naturally to sinful people. And they were doing it in the circumstances they faced. Pharaoh, because of the potential rise of a rival nation. Herod, because of a potential rival king. But God delivered Moses. God delivered Moses because Moses was to be used in delivering Israel. Satan may have used people, friends, in your life in an attempt to destroy you, in an attempt to harm you. But you are here. You are here on February 2nd, 2014, by God's divine appointment because God had other designs and his purpose is always fulfilled despite whatever the opposition may be. And so when I say God's purpose handles all opposition, overcomes all opposition, it's a matter of God's grace that you're involved and I'm involved in his purpose at all. Thanks be to God. And that's why I call this series Portraits of Grace. If you're the recipient of God's grace because you are God's child, 
then God's purpose in you will be fulfilled come what may. God's grace to Moses is his grace to you and me. And if you are his child, he has good purposes for you, and no one and no thing can thwart that. Hear this. You are invincible until God's purpose for you and for me is done. And so even with the opposition from the world, from the flesh, from the devil, and that's all the opposition there is, friends. That, there ain't no more. All the opposition there is cannot overcome the plan of Almighty God for your life. And so we see in the life of Moses that God's purpose overcomes all opposition. Now, secondly, in your outline, God's revelation overcomes our frailty. God's revelation overcomes our frailty. After Moses killed the Egyptian, he fled, the Bible tells us, to a place called Midian. There he married the daughter of a Midian priest. He settled and he worked there as a herdsman. <laughs> the Bible tells us that the Egyptians despised shepherding. They despised herding. It was beneath them. So here's Moses, who has come from the opulence of Egypt, and he is now shepherding. He is now a herdsman. He's going to spend 40 years in Midian. The Bible tells us that Moses lived 120 years. He, he was 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in Midian, and 40 years in the wilderness. 120 years of his life. 40 of those spent as God was preparing him for the next phase of his life. But from a human standpoint, he looks like an abject failure. But God uses this 40-year period to prepare Moses for leading the flock of Israel when he'll return to Egypt and be God's instrument in their liberation from bondage. And God used Moses' good motivations to get him to this place, this place of preparations. Remember, he had this good motivation. He was motivated rightly, but he did the wrong thing when he killed the Egyptian. And so Hebrews 11 tells us this. Hebrews eleven twenty five and 26. He, Moses, chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. So when Moses left Egypt, he was motivated by higher values and priorities. But there's another reason he left Egypt. He was afraid. He was scared. And in order for his mission to be fulfilled, he had to have his fear removed. And so I say in your outline, God's revelation overcomes our frailty. And here's the first piece of our frailty it overcomes, our fear. We've seen that Moses killed an Egyptian. He tried to cover it up. But in chapter 2 of Exodus, it tells us that he was found out. Verses 13 and 14. The next day, after he had killed the Egyptian, he went out and he saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, verse 14, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid. And he thought, what I did must have become known. Now Moses had enough courage to risk going and checking on the Hebrews again. 
So he's starting to make this a habit. He's running some risk when he does that. He has enough courage to do that. But he doesn't have, doesn't have the courage he's going to need to withstand Almighty Pharaoh. And God knows that, and God is going to teach him that. And we'll see how God teaches him that in just a bit. But he was afraid. And so he risked checking on his people regularly, but he was also fearful after he killed the Egyptian. And his fear was well-founded. Verse 15 of chapter 2. When Pharaoh heard this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian. And so he tried to cover it, and his cover was blown, and so he fled to Midian. But despite that, what we just read, Moses was afraid. And because he was afraid that he was going to be killed, he laughed. Here's what Hebrews 11 says. By faith, Moses left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. Uh huh. <laughs> Looks to me like he was fearing the king's anger. <laughs> Looks to me like he's afraid. But you see, Moses left Egypt twice. He left Egypt in fear the first time. He left Egypt in courage the second time. Thanks be to God. And in between is Midian. In between is what God taught him. And that's why the title of this message, up at the top, you see the title, is From Fear to Courage. God took Moses from fear to a man of courage. But what led him from that fear to courage? It was the revelation of God to Moses. And where did that revelation of God happen? In this famous passage in Exodus chapter 3. And look at what verse 10 says. God speaks directly to Moses. And in verse 10, he says, Now go. I'm sending you, Moses, to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Now, we most often associate this with the humility of Moses. Moses is saying, You know, it's just me. I'm just out here shepherding. Moses is afraid. It's not his humility, it's his fear. That's keeping Moses from being willing to say, yes, Lord, immediately. It's actually then an expression of fear due to what he had experienced in Egypt and because of Pharaoh's decree that Moses is to be killed. And so what does God provide that will overcome Moses' fear? He promises in verse 12, I will be with you, Moses. Here is why my God being with you is so significant. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Dear friends, this is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. It's the personal name of God in relationship with his people, Yahweh. Actually, just three letters, Y-H-W-H. And it means the self-existent one. I am. Now, how does that revelation to Moses help him to overcome his fear? God says to him, I am the self-existent one. I'm the independent one. I do not have my existence due to any creature or anything in creation, including Pharaoh. Therefore, there's nothing in creation on which I depend or on which my plans depend. And so, Moses, you can go forward with courage because my plan for you will be fulfilled 
because I am. One commentator said, the greatest and best man in the world, the Apostle Paul, can only say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. But God says absolutely, and it is more than any creature, man, or angel can say, I am that I am. And so God supplies to us what we need in order to fulfill his will. And what did Moses need? He needed to overcome his fear. How does he overcome that? Moses, I am with you. And the one that is with you is I am that I am, the self-existent one, the independent one. God gives us this revelation that overcomes our obstacles, our fear, in order for us to move forward, giving us what we need. Moses, in his case, to overcome his fear to courage. But I say secondly in your outline, it overcomes not only our fear, but our ignorance. God gives specifics. God says, this is what I'm calling you to, Christian. This is what I'm calling you to, church. This is what I'm calling you to do, Moses. This is why you've been in Midian for these 40 years. Now you're going to take what you have learned and you're going to put it into practice in Egypt. It overcomes our ignorance, simply meaning we would be groping in the darkness, not knowing where to go, not knowing the end of the, not knowing the plan unless God made it known to us. He makes it known in his word. And that's why Psalm 119, 105 famously says, Your word is a lamp to my feet. It's a light for my path. But this revelation of God to Moses, in it there's something more at work. God's purpose overcomes, yes, all opposition. It overcomes our frailty, our fear, and our ignorance. But I want you to see thirdly and lastly, there's something more at work in all of this, in this revelation of God, and it's this. God's Son overcomes our despair. God's Son overcomes our despair. When God created, He committed Himself to a relationship with His creatures. You see, this God is the one who is I am. That's how He's revealed Himself to, to Moses. I am that I am. I'm the self-existent one. I'm independent. I didn't make you. I didn't create anything because I was lonely, because I needed fellowship, because I needed anything. The truth is I didn't need anything. Well, then where does that leave us? God is completely independent, so where do we fit in? Where we fit in is this. When God created, he committed himself to a relationship with his creatures, a relationship that we need, not that he needs. And God gives Moses a sign that contains both of these otherwise separate elements, God's independence and yet God's relationship with us. They come together in this marvelous sign in Exodus chapter 3. Because this dialogue between Moses and God that we looked at beginning in verse 10 of Exodus 3, it goes back to verse 2. And verse 2 says this, The angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. Now, in a recent book called Covenant Apologetics, the author Scott Oliphant says this about 
God appearing to Moses in the burning bush and how he brings together these two elements of God's independence and yet at the same time God's relationship with his people in that one sign. He says the revelation that Moses has of what is really the unburning bush, not the burning bush, it's an unburning bush, it is in part to design to reveal to Moses both of these truths. The fire which represents the Lord himself is in no way dependent on the bush in order to burn. The fire is in that sense completely independent. It does not need the bush for fuel. It is able to burn in and of itself. But it is also with the bush. It could easily appear on its own because it's in need of nothing to burn. Or it could appear beside the bush. Instead, it's linked inextricably with the bush. Even as the Lord himself, who is who he is, has bound himself inextricably to his people. So what we have in this central and determinative event in the Old Testament, the event of God's announcement to save his people from their slavery, is a revelation both in word and in deed of God's twofold character. We have God revealing and explaining to Moses his very name, the Lord, Yahweh. And we also have God announcing to Moses his identity as the God of Moses' fathers, the covenant-keeping God. Thanks be to God. Now in verse 2, then, you have both of those elements. God's independence in the unburning bush, but his being with his people as well. But in verse 2, you have something else. The one appearing in the fire is called, in verse 2, the angel or the messenger of the Lord. But then look at verse 4. It says, When the Lord saw that Moses had gone over to look, God called him from within the bush. Moses, Moses. This angel of the Lord, this messenger of the Lord, is the Lord. Is God. And the reason I say God's Son is the one who overcomes our despair is because this is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ in pre-incarnate form. Now, how do I know this? Jesus encountered his opposition again in John chapter 8. And Jesus says these mighty words to them in verses 57 through 59. They say to him, you are not 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. And Jesus is hearkening back to Exodus 3. I am that I am. I am the preexistent one. I am the independent one. I am Almighty God. And at this, they understood it very clearly to be what he was saying. They picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds. Jesus appeared to Moses. And Jesus spoke to Moses. And it is God's Son who overcomes our despair that says to us that we are alone in that wilderness in Midian. And God says, you are not alone. You are never alone if you're my child. That's why I say in your outline, he is with us. Emmanuel, God, is with us. But, you know, he's not just with us. 
Because if he's just with us, it could be scary. Because I'm a sinner. And you're a sinner. If God's with me and God's seeing me, and he is. And God knows everything about me. That could be a scary thought. It is a scary thought. Except for the person and work of the Lord Jesus. Because because of that, I have a relationship with God where he deals with me not in my sin. But as his son, as his child. And so I say in your outline, yes, he is with us, but he is for us. And Romans chapter 8 says famously, if God is for us, then what? Then who can be against us? There's this uh, hymn, song from time past that is titled, All Things Work Out for Good. All things work out for good, we know. Such is God's great design. He orders all our steps below for purposes divine. This is the faith that keeps me still. No matter what the test, he lets me glory in his will. For well I know it's best. Someday the path he chose for me will all be understood. In heaven's clearer light I'll see. All things worked out for good. In your take-home truth then I say, God's children are never set aside. They are only set apart for his purpose. Now, are those beautiful promises or what? Never set aside, only set apart. To prepare for his purpose. That's you, that's me, wherever you are, whatever's going on, if you're God's child. But it's only if you're God's child. And I would love for everyone to be God's child. And this gracious God offers to you the opportunity to be in his family. So we're going to conclude by giving you an opportunity to do that. We're going to bow together in just a moment. Thank God for allowing us to be here, to praise him, to worship him, to learn of him. But as we pray, I urge you, any who came here not knowing, do I have that kind of relationship with God? From your heart to God, you ask him to make you his child. So how do you do that? We have on the screen for you. You realize that you're a sinner, like Moses, like me, like all of us. Recognize that Jesus lived the life that you should have lived. He died the death that you deserved. He paid the penalty for your sin. Repent of your sin. That is, God, I'm going to follow you with my life now. I'm going to go your way, not my way. And when we bow and we pray in your own words from your heart to God, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I believe that you're the Savior. I ask you to deliver me. I ask you to save me. I give my life to you. Let's bow together. Our Father, you show your omniscience that you know all things in so many ways. But one of them is in the incredible way that you have put together your word. Because, Lord, though your word was completed 2,000 years ago, it is still as relevant for me and for us as the moment it was first penned. Because you have in it principles there in the lives of your saints that are enduring principles. We thank you, Lord, for showing us in the life of Moses his own frailty that you overcame for your own purposes. And like Moses, you are at work in that same way for me and for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, 
that you have made the way for us to be children of the Father. And as children of the Father, we must never be in despair. We are never alone. We are never set aside, only set apart for the purposes of God. Our Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.